It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me? Are you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Yes, they are. And that's why I'm on the air with you every single morning, because there's a lot of fight in us and we need to stir it up so that we can do good things to save our country and our families. Well, when I was at Radio Row, uh, hold their feet to the fire in D.C. on top of Fox News uh, recently, I interviewed two young men that were incredible. Uh, One of them was a guy named Ben Berquam, who is one of those independent journalists that goes in harm's way to bring us images of things that we would never see if we left it up to the mainstream news. So he has a lot of stories to tell. And coming up right now is Christoph Veras. Christoph is Hungarian, but he just came back from Ukraine, and he has incredible stories to tell about what's happening to the Ukrainian people. I hope you'll stay tuned. And uh, thanks. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios, back with you. And uh, it's always a privilege for me uh, to meet people from around the world and talk to them about what's going on in their part of the world. I've traveled a lot. And recently, when we were at CPAC in uh, Dallas, I met the president of Hungary, Victor, uh, Victor Orban, and was also on Hungarian television. And it was just a wonderful interaction because some great things are happening in Hungary. Uh, that's not why I'm interviewing our guest, but it'd be interesting to ask him about it. Christoph Veres is Hungarian. Uh, he is a researcher at the Budapest-based Migration Research Center, and he's a visiting fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. So, Christoph, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Your, your English is great. Thank you. How did you? How did this happen? Did you learn in Hungary, or have you been in an English-speaking country studying? Or no, this is my first time. I've been here for a year, but I learned English in high school. Yeah. So now you've well, a year, and you know, yeah. So you're doing very well. Thank you. Um, you recently went to Ukraine. Now, my, tell me, explain to us what the relationship between Hungary and Ukraine are right now. Um, Hungary, of course, and Ukraine were part of the Eastern Bloc under the old Soviet Union. So you all suffered mutually under, you know, Soviet oppression. And now you're free countries. Um, but uh, Ukraine is, of course, going through a, a terrible war right now. And you just spent some time there. How long were you there? I was there for um, seven days uh, at the beginning of, uh, of September. How would you help us to understand? When I think of Ukraine, I think of uh, them joined almost, this, this is a vernacular, joined at the hip with Russia, really close, historically, with Russia. 
And Hungary is separate, separate people, separate lineage, right? Yeah, that's correct. Like um, the, the area that uh, today is Ukraine, historically um, speaking, had uh, very um, close ties with Russia. Yes. Yeah. While at the same time, uh, Hungary, its history, it's more um, Central Europe. How would you contrast Hungary and Ukraine as independent uh, states or uh, countries? Well, first of all, um, before the war, Hungary was already part of the, of the EU, the Schengen area um, and NATO, while um, Ukraine was kind of, uh, kind of in, a, in a limbo between, uh, between Russia and, and the West. They had, they had ties to the West, but they also had uh, uh, strong ties to Russia and uh, the population in the eastern parts of the country uh, was more uh, pro-Russia, while at the same time the population of the western part of the country was more pro-West. A lot of Russians there, a lot of Russian in their blood, which is, so it makes it confusing. It's like a... Russian speaking, yes. Yes, Russian speaking, with Russian loyalties, yeah. Well, all right, so the war is going on now. Honestly, can you please? I, I can't tell you the state of the war right now. What, what, from your perspective, is the state of that conflict? Right now, we've just vis- witnessed um, a very swift uh, Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive in the east, and uh, at the same time, no one really knows what uh, what winter is going to hold. Like each and every uh, local stakeholder, so politicians or um, NGOs or church organizations that I talked to in Ukraine they said that they are very much afraid of winter. They are afraid that Russians are going to target the country's power generating capabilities and after that they will just be left without electricity and heating. Right now there are 7 million internally displaced people in Ukraine and uh, if there is no heat and, uh, and no electricity, how are you going to uh, care for all those people? While at the same time in Europe there is, a, there is an energy crisis, you have uh, inflation, um, and the war is also uh, it's uh, bringing a great toll on Europe too. Your job to go over there was to what assess what to might assess happen? the humanitarian situation there. Yes, I I went there to see uh, how the population is living, how they are caring for uh, internal refugees inside the country, and uh, what humanitarian challenges the country is facing. So, uh, have you finished that list? I mean, are there other things that you uh, look? One thing that I understand, and I think you are the, that you've experienced this. So tell me, churches are really stepping up. Is that right? That's churches correct. Churches in Ukraine are stepping up to help people. What are they doing? There are hundreds of thousands of uh, internal refugees in the western part of the country, and not many uh, uh, international aid is going there because most of the international big, uh, big money NGOs are focusing on those parts of the country where there is active fighting. While at the same time, all these church organizations in the western part of the country are struggling to help all these uh, all these people who have to flee their homes. So, what kinds of are they, are they housing them in churches? Are yes. the church people housing them in their homes? Both. They're feeding them. What else are they? What are they doing? I went to uh, I went to a couple of churches in Lviv, which is uh, the biggest city in the western part of Ukraine. And uh, each and every uh, church that I went to, you had uh, refugees staying there. Not much, 15, 20, 30, but uh, all of their capacities for, uh, for housing people seem to be full. So what's going to happen if, if uh, more people come during the winter from the eastern part of the country? 
Are these churches Eastern Orthodox or there is there a Catholic? What are what are they? The churches that I visited were mostly Baptist. Oh, really? Yeah. How interesting. The Baptist uh, the Baptist churches in um, in Ukraine are are very active in uh, tackling the humanitarian crisis. Uh, the, their main problem is that is that they don't have enough resources. They are not really uh, receiving uh, enough uh, enough help from from the international community. I'm not talking about private actors. I'm talking about the fact that um, that governments, the United States, uh, should send uh, humanitarian aid or some of the of the money earmarked for humanitarian aid directly to these small local NGOs, these small local church groups, because they know what they are doing. They are on the ground, and they are the mo- they will be the most efficient in spending that money. You know, I would just add to that, Christoph, because I'm a Christian, and I go to an, an active church. Uh, I'm very familiar with Baptists. Uh, and it's not just Baptists. The United States has all kinds of uh, evangelical Christians who are very active in their faith. You know that. So, and they're in the habit of sending people over and sending money and helping local churches. So I could see this, I'm just saying, because a lot of people listening to us right now would be in those circles. How could they connect with a Ukrainian church to help them? How could they give money? I mean, would there be a list? Is there a, a, a some sort of a clearinghouse? Do you guys have that, that kind of information? We are just uh, collecting a list uh, right now, and uh, we are going to publish it um, um, in a report that we are writing to the Hudson Institute. Okay. But uh, also, if the listeners uh, uh, look up uh, Baptist churches in the Lviv region, that's L-V-I-V, uh, in Ukraine, they should be able to find uh, online portals where you can just donate money. You know, it's ironic. Um, you're, you're too young to remember this, but when I was young... Uh, you know, the Soviet Union was powerful. They were our number one enemy. And when I was a kid, we were at loggerheads over nuclear war during the Cold War. I'm sure you know about it, even though you wouldn't have lived through it. Uh, and we, we were two huge world powers. And during that time, uh, there were so many missionaries. Uh, well, there had been a lot of missionaries in Russia. And the churches that I actually was in Moscow in 1991 right before the Soviet Union broke up 1991 Um, and the um, underground church had just grown so much it was the Baptists uh, maybe there were other kinds but that was what was what I saw they were just incredible people who just suffered so much during the Soviet reign you know you know raided by the the KGB and it's ironic to me that the house, those underground churches now have bubbled up, and now they're the ones that are actually helping the refugees from the war. That's very moving to me, actually, and I think it's the way it should be. It yeah. was wonderful to see how, how, um, how those local churches stepped in uh, to help, uh, help their own population. Sometimes uh, they even had to uh, organize evacuations. When, uh, when the Russians partially encircled uh, the capital city, Kiev, in, um, in March, in one of the suburbs, Irpin, uh, the local government basically told people, go to your churches, they will organize the evacuations, they will help you. I think that's amazing. That's the way it should be. All right, so when you, are, when you were there, was part of your um, investigation on whether a wave of immigrants might come to the United States again? Would there be another way? What do you think those refugees would do? Where would they go if they're so cold? There's so many of them, they can't find food, uh, and they're starving. Where, where, what's, where would they go? What, would they come to Hungary? Where would they go? 
Well, right now, uh, all those um, IDPs, they don't really want to leave the country. They keep saying, this is my home, yes, I want to I stay, understand. I want to I rebuild my country when the war is over. If um, they will have to flee, then, uh, of course, first they would uh, f uh, come to European frontline countries like, like Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Moldavia. Are those countries receiving refugees? Uh, Yes and no. The borders are um, are open right now. They've been uh, open since the start of the conflict, but uh, since uh, the start of the uh, since the start of May, there has been a slow trickle of uh, Ukrainians uh, returning to Ukraine. But uh, Europe is expecting to to receive uh, another wave of of uh, refugees uh, if the war doesn't end before winter. But would you say the goal is, for any of us, if we think about having to suddenly leave our homes, where we grew up, where our families, our neighbors, our stores, our schools, if we had to suddenly leave, we would rather stay. And isn't that the point, to try to help them stay? Yes, most of the people want to stay in the neighborhood. Obviously, it's much easier to, to return back to Ukraine from Poland or from Hungary than from the United States. So how would that happen? You're talking about this. So you're saying that the solution is for government, American dollars, foreign aid dollars to go to these churches? Yes, that's uh, that's one solution. Help these people to be able to stay uh, where they are right now because they really don't want to leave. Uh, they can be forced to leave, uh, to leave, obviously, if the conditions turn uh, uh, that bad but they just don't want to. So it's more efficient to help these people while they are still there, close to their homes. Christoph, did you have any personal interaction with Ukrainians? Yes, um, I did uh, a couple of interviews with, uh, uh, with uh, Ukrainian internal refugees. So, what did you think? Did you hear any stories that, that you can tell us about, like individual stories? Uh, yes, there was this, uh, there was this lady uh, who has uh, five children. She's living in a, in a church refugee center in uh, Lviv in western Ukraine. And uh, she's from Mariupol. Mariupol uh, right now is under uh, Russian occupation. And uh, her husband is in Sweden. And uh, she, she told me that she wants to go back to Mariupol to check on her house, to go back to the city, which was completely destroyed by, by Russian troops and right now is under brutal Russian occupation. And when we asked her, like, why don't you go to Sweden? Your husband is there and your husband has a job. And she just told us that I had enough traveling and this is my home and I need to go back and see if my house is still there. I have an, I'm really uh, confused about Russia a little bit. It, and I'd be interested to know your perspective. You know, for when the Soviet Union broke up, there was a period of um, openness, and Americans flooded into Russia. Um, a lot of exchanges, a, a lot of discussions for the first time, glass-nosed openness, being able to, t you know, talk about... <laughs> I did a lot of interviews during that time, and it was amazing to me to see people realize that they could actually say what they thought. It was just an amazing thing to watch it psychologically, to suddenly... You probably... Your parents probably lived through that. Um, but Russia then became kind of our ally. There were a lot of favorable things about Putin, uh, and there were just favorable things. And I certainly love the Russian people when I was over there. But right now, does everyone in Eastern the Eastern Bloc hate the Russians? 
What's the attitude toward the Russians? Do they hate Putin, but they don't, uh, they don't hate the Russians, or they hate all of them? Or tell, can you explain the psychological state of, um, like, say, Hungary and Eastern Bloc countries right now, or in Ukraine, to Russia? It's very complicated. So you can't say that there is a there is a uniform attitude towards Russia in uh, in um, ex uh, Eastern Bloc countries. Like obviously uh, Poland uh, Poland is uh, really not happy. What's happen- happening? What Russia is doing in Ukraine? They are uh, sending a lot of weapons. They they feel Polish people feel that this fight is theirs. Like this is their war. Poland? You mean Ukraine's war or their or Poland's war? They they feel that the war in Ukraine is Poland's war. Oh really? That's why that's why oh, they are they are leading uh, they are leading uh, the effort to to uh, send uh, all the help that Ukraine needs. Yes. While at the same time uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia or in Hungary, it's uh, it's more mixed. Uh, the general attitude is, for example, in uh, in um, Hungary. Is uh, is that this war is uh, bad for Europe? Obviously, uh, Ukraine is the victim, and uh, Russia is the aggressor. But uh, what usually uh, decision makers uh, don't understand here in the United States is that the costs of this war for uh, European countries is very, very, very high. And uh, it's very h- harsh on the population, gas prices, energy prices, uh, inflation. And because of that, uh, attitude towards this war is uh, much more mixed in, uh, in these countries. Well, I don't, you, you may not be able to comment on this because of your position. I don't know. But personally, the way I see this, from my vantage point, with some information but not all of it, is that I think I think Putin was goaded into this war. I don't necessarily know that he wanted that. He has a big ego, and I think they kind of poked the bear. And now that he's in, he can't get out of it. That's the way I see it. I think the Russian people are, you know... I bet if you poll the Russian people, they're not crazy about this war either. It's difficult to say because uh, how do you poll the Russian people? Like, well, do, that, you, yeah, no. do you do oh, you believe? Oh, this metaphorical. No, I couldn't. Yeah, but like, do you believe the polls that they publish oh, oh, in Russia? Okay, That's yeah, what right, I mean. Right, right, like, yes, can right. you believe that poll? Right. Like, uh, we don't know how much Russian people. It's very hard to grasp how much they support this war. Are they not demonstrating because they support the war, or they are not demonstrating because they are too afraid to demonstrate against the war? Yeah. It's very difficult to say. You know, one other thing, uh, this is subjective, and I'm asking you questions I know you had no idea I was going to ask you. Uh, our experience uh, in this country, at least, I'm from Chicago, and there's a huge influx of uh, Russians. And there has been for a long time. And, w- and you know how uh, groups will have personalities or traits? And one of the things we've noticed with the Russians is the abject cruelty. You know, I'm not saying they're all cruel. I've met wonderful Russians. I was in Russia. I met, made friends there. So don't misunderstand me. But there seems to be a strain of cruelty uh, and inhumanity among the Russians, which I, I always attribute to those years of communism and godlessness. I don't see that in Hungarians and, and the Polish. Oh, because you just comment on that. Can you? Is that It's a- very difficult to comment on, um, <laughs> on, on something like that. The only thing I could um, I could relate is uh, is the is the atrocities that the Russian army has committed in Ukraine. We've seen uh, the pictures from Bucha from from Irpin, and now we also see the the mass graves 
of, uh, of civilians in the recently uh, liberated uh, areas of Ukraine. Do the people, uh, like in Hungary and other countries, do they feel that Zelensky is the hero that some people in this country feel he is? Uh, the um, people's attitude uh, towards, uh, towards Zelensky is, uh, is much more uh, mixed uh, in, uh, in Central Europe because um, certain people sometimes feel that uh, uh, he's, uh, he's asking for too much, like he's not being fair. This one goes more like at the beginning of the conflict, uh, but uh, no, he's not uh, glorified uh, in, uh, in Central Europe the way that he is glorified here in the United States. Well, some of us feel like it's like a photo op. We do uh, the optics, we call it, like, uh, uh, the, uh, like stories are told and tales are woven. For instance, like our President Kennedy back in the 60s, uh, was uh, they called the, the White House Camelot then, like it was some mystical place, he was the king and his wife was beautiful, and they, they spin a story so that you see the people that way, but it's not really true. And I kind of feel like they've done that with Zelensky, because uh, he is very winsome, you know, it's he's a winsome personality, but my understanding is that um, there's so much corruption in Ukraine, it's very hard, and he's part of that, as I understand it, um, and also that he's part of the World Economic Forum, which makes me nervous. <laughs> Well, I'm not an expert on um, on corruption, but uh, uh, if you narrow it down to, uh, for example, um, humanitarian aid that we we were talking about, it's uh, it's much uh, easier to avoid uh, even the shadow of corruption if you if you work directly with these uh, small church organizations and local NGOs. Right, which is the solution to bring us back to this? If we want to help the Ukrainian people, <clears throat> best to go through the churches. I agree with you. <clears throat> the the injury, all of those big entities can become so corrupt it's kind of sad you know very seldom do people uh, serve selflessly and spend all the money on the people that need it they, they sometimes take some so helping through the churches is good anything else you want to say about what's happening with refugees in Ukraine in closing here just one more thing uh, when I said 7 million internally displaced people that's not everyone who needs humanitarian aid because uh you have roughly three to five million people in Ukraine who uh, still live in their uh, bombed out apartments or uh, in tents in their own gardens next to their destroyed houses. They don't show up in the statistics as uh, internal displaced people or international refugees, but they are still in need of uh, humanitarian aid. And especially now that winter is upon us. Christoph Veris, <clears throat> really, I appreciate you telling us this. Uh, and then we know what, then we know what we need to do. And I'm hoping that people will be listening, especially from churches, and uh, talk to their pastors, their missionary agencies, and see if they can't get someone, uh, get their people to start giving. And taking on a church over there as a partner. We do that in America. Sometimes churches will adopt other churches in other lands and take them on and become friends and help them. So maybe that will happen as a result of this conversation. And so I appreciate Christoph Veris. Again, he's a researcher at the Budapest, Budapest, uh, based Migration Research Center, and he's a visiting fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. And it's been great, Christoph. Thank you so much for the so much of your time today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at sandy at afr.net. That's sandy at afr.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios with you. We are still uh, on the rooftop at Radio Row. Uh, hold their feet to the fire. 
And uh, I have a special guest that I just, I saw his bio here and I wanted to talk to him because you may remember that we've talked to uh, some of these journalists who are maverick journalists who go out there, they're not working for ABC, CBS, and NBC. Uh, they're like off the grid going in uh, to in the middle of Antifa, Black Lives Matter. They go in harm's way and they capture all kinds of stories that we would not have, video we would not see if they didn't have the courage to do that. And so... Um, Ben Bequam is my guest, and there's a lot more to say about it, but let's start with that, Ben, okay? Because yeah. that's how you started, right? Yeah, I started in California, uh, got involved in college. Actually, uh, the Tea Party really was when I first started, uh, I don't know, 12 years, however long ago. That was 2010. Oh. And I know, I know. <laughs> Take away the... <laughs> <laughs> and that, I got, I, but I just saw the, the direction our country was going. I was a college student at the time and just got fed up with it. Uh, and then ultimately, about six years ago, uh, that's what got me to start Frontline America. I was I was fed up with the way things were going. The left was attacking all of conservative ideas. They were destroying our country, especially destroying the state of California. And I said, I'm tired of this. So I just started taking my phone out and filming and confronting the left. And that again, that's that's where Frontline America was uh, born. Going out to Berkeley and and uh, going after Antifa and showing that they were the truly the fascists, not not the people on our side. Let me stop and say that uh, Ben is the director of Frontline America. He's also hosts a show called Law and Border on Real America's Voice. Uh, so he's he's be doing a lot of things. We're going to get into that. Yep. But let's go back now. So this is before you started this. Yep. You were going into the middle of Antifa. You were just showing me. You have scars. What have you got on your head there? Yeah, I've got 13 stitches on my head, and then they cut the top of my ear off with sticks uh, for simply asking questions. I had the audacity to wear a Make America Great Again hat into Berkeley, and I had my phone out and was was uh, interviewing people and having my my focus was always trying to find common ground where we could and yeah. and have ha, dialogue. Ha, ha. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and for that... Weren't we innocent then? Yes, yes. I, what I didn't realize was common ground to them is violence. You know, words are violence. Uh, or at least that's their, their justification for violence. And so somebody stole my hat. They ran into the crowd of Antifa. And I decided it was that pivotal fork in the road. I could almost see it. It was like, all right, I either let that go, let them have it, or I go in there and something changes. And I decided to go in there, and I got attacked. Uh, ultimately, ended up with three different people punched in the face, hit over the head with sticks, hit in the side of the ear. I stood there the whole time, and I was bleeding all over. Uh, and ultimately, the group that was with us, the the Proud Boys that were there, uh, who are really the only people that were standing up at that point. The cops stood down. They allowed it to happen. And the Proud Boys were warriors for freedom. I mean, they were standing yes, up. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Uh, oh, now they're insurrectionists. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, well, anybody who loves this country is loves, an insurrectionist. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, it's what's ironic is it's truly, we lived through four years of insurrection under, when President Trump was in office, it was nothing but, it was terrorism, what Antifa and BLM and the Democrats were doing. And just, everyone needs to remember, Antifa and BLM were working at the behest of the Democrat Party. Uh, and, and all you have to do is look at where they're at now. They disappeared. As soon as the, the election fraud was successful and the coup was finalized, uh, they disappeared. They don't, you know, the, the same number of unarmed black men are being killed every single year. Uh, the same, the, the same so-called injustice is happening. It's the same fascist system that Antifa was going after President Trump, which obviously it's not fascist. They're the fascists. But all of that's still there. They, but they were at, they were working for the Democratic Party, and they need to be held accountable. The Democrats need to be held accountable, and that's so I went out to expose that. And the reason I decided to continue after that that day uh, was I have a I, at the time I had a six-year-old daughter. My wife was pregnant, eight months pregnant at the time. I have now a five and a twelve-year-old, and it was either I do this 
or they're going to have to deal with this. And as a dad and as a father, as a husband, it's like, it's my job. It's a very big deal, very yeah. bold thing to do. It's one thing to join the Army. It's another thing to be a one-man Army and go out there. I'd be curious, um, before we move to other things, I'd be curious to know what you, how you would describe the makeup of Antifa as you experience them. I have my theories and things I've picked up, but who are they? Who are they? They're, well, they're, a lot of them are ignorant uh leftists they're communists they you know they've been taught that america is a terrible place they are the outgrowth of uh, an education system that teaches that america is a an evil country that colonialism is is still rampant and that they there's an injustice and they have to write that injustice i think a lot of them maybe truly believe that what they're doing is righteous but i think a lot of it's just evil i think they're just a bunch of people that that, that they see the ability to go out and commit violence and attack people and attack businesses uh, and they, they never received the spankings they deserved as kids. They never had the discipline that they should have had because we took that out and gave them trophies instead. Uh, so it's really, they are the outgrowth of a generation of terrible parents and terrible education. I know there's no way to know this, but do you, what, would you say that there's a significant part of them that are like gay activists, trans activists? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's all connected. It's, it, yeah. it's the idea of intersectionality. Oh, yes. So all of that is lumped together. This whole cabal, it's... It's Satan. It's uh, transgender, homo, the 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 LGBT hate movement. All of that lumped in with communism, the hate for capitalism. Um, ra- you know, guys under fighting racism and fascism. But truly, they are the racist. They are the fascist. They are they are everything they claim that we are. It's just a reflection of themselves. And I just have to add, just to emphasize your point. I think I, in my head, I had these visuals. I remember a, a person being shot on the street, I believe in Seattle, mm-hmm. by a, a, an Antifa yep. member behind the, a column. Yep, shot in the I, chest. I remember seeing a guy, more than one, but this one particular guy falling on the ground and Antifa coming over and kicking him in the head. Mm-hmm. Over and yep. over. They have, it's the wickedness that you're, desc- you're describing, you're being careful about it, but I know you've seen it. It just, it is unbelievable. They have no it's demonic. regard. It's pure, de- it's, 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 it's a level of evil. It's the same level of evil that you see in the cartels when they dismember people while they're still alive. Yes. It's the level of evil that most, uh, most rational people can't comprehend. You know, you look at, I can't imagine stomping an innocent person's face into a, into a concrete sidewalk. I can't imagine cutting somebody's arm off while they're still alive, uh, knowing that I'm going to kill that person. I can't imagine that, but there is a, we have allowed that. The, the real battle that we're in, whether it's the border or Antifa or all this, is good versus evil. And that's really what it is. And that's, that's who we're up against. When you see evil, you know that, that is, that's the enemy. And the problem is on our side, for too long, we have compromised with evil. Instead of saying we're going to defeat evil, that's what they do. The left and, and evil doesn't compromise with the right. They continue to move their agenda forward. Which brings us back to your first statement. You were going to go out and talk to them and yeah. kind of reason with them. Yeah. Oh. And, and I will yeah. say this. Along the way, I've woken a ton of people up. They, I didn't turn them woke. I, I, I awakened them yeah. uh, to the reality of this. And so there is a place for that. There are some good people out there that are misguided yeah. that need direction. Right. And I think that's where our place to go in. But you have to know those people versus uh, the people that will slit your throat. 
and and you have to be wise on which ones you you know you can reach and which ones you have to just defeat ben let me just say you sound to me like a person who follows christ amen christ followers amen. so we are too i am too and uh, i recognize the language and i i'm with you that we think that helps us actually to discuss what's going on in the world that understanding deep understanding yep. of uh, good versus evil and god's work and the the fact that evil is getting more bold and we're hurtling toward the end helps us to understand this better. Absolutely. It? It's biblical. It's all biblical. It's I mean, it's they've replaced truth with the lie. They have scales over their eyes. All of that. Yeah, and the we're ma- seeing the, out, the, the end times, the, the outcome of that. The grand delusion. Well, how come my Absol- neighbors don't get this? How come my kids don't That's get it. this? The grand delusion. They can't without Christ. Kind of like when Moses, uh, Moses, when Pharaoh hardened his heart and yep. God just hardened it more because he was already. So he's blinded people because yep. they didn't want to see anyway. Yep. So anyway, but the, I'm with you, Ben, on that. But let's talk now. Let's talk now about the border because you focused your energies down there. Why did you do that? What was the transition for you? You know, it was uh, it being in California. We escaped about a year ago. We moved back to America, to Arkansas. And, <laughs> and uh, But I was in California for about five years, and I just saw the direction. I was actually a college student. I uh, got my undergrad at Fresno State, got my grad degree at Fresno State. And I went to school there. Speaking of student loan debt, uh, I had $80,000 in student loan debt. And I had students going to school that were illegal aliens that had full rides. And I, I was, uh, you know, that was really what got me to think, what's going on here? Um, how can somebody who's here illegally be given tax dollars that I'm not getting uh, and when I'm having to pay my way through school? And that, that kind of got the ball rolling. And then it just snowballed into fighting the sanctuary state uh, battle. I met really uh, the biggest thing after that that got me really involved or concerned about this was meeting angel families angel moms i met agnes gibney uh, whose son ronald da silva was killed by an illegal alien she was a, a legal immigrant herself escaped communism to come to america and and her whole american dream was shattered because of the sanctuary policy that protects illegal aliens at the expense of american citizens and that was the catalyst that led to all of this law and border and everything else that we see um i i, I was involved with the fight sanctuary state movement in california um, which, you know, unfortunately didn't succeed. And, and California is, is one of the worst examples of what lawless politicians, treasonous politicians can do to a state. Before we, I want to move on. You brought some displays here, which looks fascinating. But, but in California, I know you don't live there now, but you were there for a long time. Do you see any chance? I know California, during the, the, during the 2020 uh, presidential election, we saw so much spirit and these rallies, I saw the black activist whose name escapes me, who was beaten by Antifa. I'm sure you know who. I can't think of his name. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. He was also on January 6th and got beaten then. Yep. Uh, just so bold, so yep. bold, and uh, so many people marching, and even in Beverly Hills. Do you have any hope that California can pull themselves? I, back? I was there through all of that, and we, and it is. There are a lot of patriots in California. The I would say the state's not gone, but it there's so much corruption. There's they have perfected voter fraud. So when we saw the 2020 election. Uh, theft and, and all the fraud through that. California is on such another level with that. I mean, to the point now where illegal aliens are given driver's licenses and they're automatically registered to vote unless they opt out. And there is nothing that goes back. The Secretary of State doesn't investigate voter fraud. So to in order to... Fi- I think there are far more conservatives on our side. And, and I, I was there with my American flag and marched across the Golden Gate Bridge um, with a group of patriots, I had people come up to me and said they, this is the first time in 60 years that they've been able to hold an American flag outside because they're afraid of being attacked. Uh, and and it's, it's like living with Stockholm Syndrome in these cities, San Francisco, L.A., Oakland, especially Oakland, um, Berkeley. But there are so many people that are ready for freedom. They're starving for it, but they're afraid to step out. 
And then you saw what happened in 2020. I think um, I don't see anything major changing in California without some sort of drastic. Um, I don't. I don't want to say violence, but it's it, there. There's something major that needs to change there systemically. Uh, that that I don't see that changing anytime soon because it's the people that are in control that would have to change it. Right. And well, Gavin Newsom wants to be president or vice president, so maybe you'll get rid of him and then we'll get him. Yeah. Well. That, yeah. That'd be the worst for for both because then we get somebody. It's it's like we always replace somebody bad with somebody worse in California, and there. And you think Gavin Newsom can't get worse? I, I promise you, it can. There are wor- and yeah. he is he's about as evil as they get. But I agree. You know, I'm just a general point again. When you, I've done radio for years. I did a drive time show in Chicago, and there's a lot of violence there. You might know that. <laughs> yeah. So you know those dang, those dang guns. Yeah, right. It's all the guns' fault. <laughs> Not the people. Yeah. Uh, so I'm reading these stories that are more horrific every day, and I used to think to myself, "This is as bad as it, it can't get worse." Children dropped off rooftops. Uh, children, uh, you know, I, uh, I can't, it can't get worse than this story. I used to just weep reading them. Yeah. But evil does never. It never stops. It does things that we can't even imagine. That's uh, why to, we have to fight. To that point, real quick. Uh, I, I thought that about Obama. I thought America was getting to the point where yes. we weren't. It was the point of no return. And then we got President Trump. And, and I think, so to answer your question, not to be a pessimist, California can be saved, but in, in some ways it has to get to that point of total darkness uh, for people, for that light to shine. But just remember, when the uh, the darker the dark is, the brighter the light shines. Yes. So it's, I there, see there's that. opportunity there. I do see that, Ben. I, I see that. But, but, but okay, but uh, rather than getting off yeah, track, yeah, yeah, yeah. you brought some displays because now you've brought your skills and your knowledge down to covering the border. So and tell us what you're doing down there before you show me these. Yeah, so Law and Border, uh, I started just as an independent, as you mentioned, as Frontline America, saw the Angel families. I was like, okay, what the heck's going on? I was. I, I didn't want to hear. What, one of the things I really don't like is being told what to think by <laughs> people on the news especially because we know there's so much propaganda out there. And so I just started going to the border. I'd go to Tijuana. I'd go to Arizona, uh, met friends along the way that live on the border, and just started becoming an investigative journalist. That wasn't my background. I was a kinesiology exercise science major, uh, <laughs> MBA, and, and then I just got into it. And so I just, it, it was a progression. Uh, and, and along that way, what I started noticing were, uh, it was evidence of the invasion that now that we see. And this was under, you know, under President Trump, I saw... The, the 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 direction that we could have been heading and I saw the the shift that took place when President Trump actually secured the border now what we're seeing is a total destruction of American sovereignty at the southern border and and what I have are you know the the evidence of that I have uh, a board here of some of the IDs these are uh, IDs that were dropped along the way. They're from. Uh, I have IDs. They're, from, they're American. I. Uh, no, these are from all over the world. So oh, most, oh, oh, I see. Okay. Most of these are. These ones are from mostly from Chile, but they're from all over the world. Uh, I've got some from Senegal down here, and these were all obtained on the Mexico side of the border. These are IDs that people are dropping as they go. And well, we are they dropping them because they don't want people to know where they're from and who they are? Yes, and we've interviewed them, and what they what we were told is they've been coached by these organizations, the UN being the worst one, uh, that if they have, if they don't have IDs, they can basically say whoever they want to be. And in particular, they have an easier time getting into America, claiming asylum if they come as a family unit. So if a single male is coming across and uh, he finds a female, they could be from different countries. They connect. They buy a child along the way. There are markets in Mexico. The cartel sells children. They recycle them. So they'll sell the kid, send them up, send them across the border, and then that kid gets sent back to the cartel to be used again to another fake family, another fake dad. And, and 
Yuma, Arizona, the worst one I saw is Border Patrol said they had, they had a child that was recycled 17 times. Um, How again, old? evil. How old? Uh, down to one years old. I mean, they're 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 infants. They're um, and so this is this represents that immigration fraud that is being perpetrated by these people on this board. But really, it's being perpetrated by the people that we are paying our tax dollars to. The United Nations uh, groups like Catholic Charities, Lutheran Charities, all of these so-called non-governmental organizations that are aiding and abetting the invasion into our country and, ma- and making themselves rich they've been doing that since the obama years hundreds you know, of millions of dollars horrible they built those facilities with all this millions of dollars tax dollars yep. and they were perpetrating this yeah it's they are so working corrupt. what's crazy is border patrol tells me now that they've become the middleman they will tell so they'll get a call from one of these organizations uh saying you're going to have a group like lutheran yeah lutheran charities, service, charities. Ser- service yeah uh, there, there's about nine major groups and then there's a, a hundreds of smaller subsidiaries that work underneath them Pueblo Sin Fronteras, Centro Sin Fronteras, El Otro Lado all of these groups, anti-American leftist organizations um, and, and so they're, they're actually working as middlemen they'll get a call, they'll call Border Patrol say you're getting 150 people right here send, send Border Patrol. Well while that's happening the other side of this are the people that don't want to get caught. So all the people that you see in Yuma and Del Rio and Eagle Pass those are people that want to get caught. They're turning themselves in, they've been coached on claiming fake asylum vast majority of those have no justification for asylum, but they are the distraction. The cartel's making money on all of them. These so-called charities making money on all of them, but really it's a distraction for the people in the government, or excuse me, for the people in the desert that are running the drugs and the sex trafficking and the child, the, the additional human trafficking. Uh, these are a pair of carpet shoes. I have dozens of these. Carpet shoes. That they, you put over your feet when you're running in the desert so that you can't see the footprints of your shoes. And these oh might be goodness. your size. <laughs> but, but I don't that, think I'll be. Really I don't think I'll be. I'll just touch them a little yeah. bit. I prom- I will not be running over the. <laughs> but that wow. so this that represents so that's the and real it's like threat. made out of uh, camouflage. Yep. Like cam- so they like cam- cam- canvas. Yep. So if you go down to Arizona, in between uh, Sasabe and Nogales, uh, it's it, it's called no man's land. They call it. You know, it's the basically border patrol doesn't isn't there. Uh, they've all been pulled to these other areas. That's where the invasion, the real invasion of the drugs, the, the human traffickers, and, and the terrorists. That's where they're going. They're going to the places that we're not looking because we're distracted by all these other things. But it is, it's suicide of a nation if we don't stop this. And that's really what we're trying to show. I just heard a report that they'd found 5,000 bodies in the desert somewhere. I don't know in the vastness of all this, but not on our border, or above our border, but on the other side. And they th- there was a prediction that there were thousands of people dead in that desert. So this is, yes, it's harming us, but for those humanitarians who have a soft oh. spot uh, for people coming across the border, we're putting them in such horrible danger. But yes, it, it's the exact opposite of being humanitarian. The, yes. These policies are grotesque. They're evil. And I, my heart, I, I feel for the people that are coming. Of my, like I said, my wife is a legal immigrant. She came. Their family escaped communism. Um, but there's a right way to do it. And, and it's, I don't blame the people that are coming because they've been given the invitation. It's the right. policies and the people that are in, in power in Washington, D.C. and these NGOs that, that need to be held accountable. Then how in the world, since I understand, and we don't even, but the, the cartels control the border they control south of the border and north of the border in our terror in our land they yep. control what happens how in the world do you navigate what you're doing and you i know, pray i yourself? pray a lot i pray a lot i mean there are times i was just in like i said down in arizona we actually witnessed uh cartel sinaloa cartel members with ak-47s up on tops of the mountains there they control that high ground uh, they operate there they have ford operating bases uh, up up to the border of the u.s and they have scouts on all the high ground on the u.s side 
and we I witnessed them uh, firing their AK-47s. I can't talk about too much of that, but it was you know they, they, it, it's a war going on. Um, when we go there, we're fully armed. I was working with the guy Tim Foley of Arizona Border Recon. But I pray about it. I say, Lord, show me where to go and where not to go. Tell me, you know, when, how far on this story to tell and, and when to back off. Because we, we have been approached by cartel and we've been threatened. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a nice game. You know, it's, it, it's dangerous. But, again, I look at it and say, if I don't do it, it's something my wife or kids are have to do. And it's, you know, it's just not acceptable to me. Do your kids know what you're doing? Uh, some. I don't. I don't talk too much about it. Uh, my wife doesn't watch most of my videos, but uh, yeah, they 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 know some. It's very very brave that you're doing, and I know you know that. But that's what God does. He gives us courage, things to do things that we would never do yeah. naturally do. And so Ben, we need to pray for you. Ben Bearqualm, we need to pray for you seriously. Uh, but let me just tell people that you do host this Law and Border on Real America's Voice. Now, where can people find Real America's Voice now? Uh, Dish Network, Roku, Pluto, um, and the easiest place to watch it the, 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 is on the app. You can go to your app store in iOS or Android, look up America's Voice, uh, download the app, and you can watch all of our shows live there. Okay. And then my, if you just search Law and Border on that, uh, you can also go to americasvoice.news, and then that has all of the networks, so you can see if, if we are in on your cable provider uh, but again the app is probably the best one to go to all right and i just want to mark this conversation this part of it because we are i just sense it too ben as i do my show prep i sense look i have a lot of connections i've been around a long time so i get a lot of stuff in my inbox that's i could do a whole show just on my own inbox but when it comes to me finding stories and finding out what's really happening it's harder it's getting harder and harder and you know that all these blocks all these incredible blocks and so for people that are not on the internet all the time uh this real america's voice is a great source of the truth which is what we need desperately so uh, don't just listen to that in passing i recommend that you actually do that real america's voice Download the app or look at look for it again on online as he just said America's Voice dot, dot news dot news yep yeah so and look for his show Law and Border also Frontline America where dot, wha- FrontlineAmerica.com, and then all of my social media is just at Ben Burkwam okay all right that's very good well Ben God bless you and as a matter of fact uh, do you mind this is I don't usually do but can I pray yeah, for you yeah of course Lord uh, let's see yeah uh, Lord I just pray for Ben he reminds me my son by the way. And, uh, Father, thank you for giving him the courage that you're giving him. Lord, protect him. Protect him, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you protect him. We pray for his family and his wife. I'm sure she's worried sick, and I pray that you give her peace and be with his kids. And um, I pray that at some point they understand what a warrior their dad has been for them. And so, Lord, we thank you. We, we trust you. Whatever happens, mm-hmm. our lives are yours anyway. So we trust you, and we just pray that you'd help us to be cur- courageous to the end. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank, thank you, Ben. And uh, thank you all for listening. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. <laughs>